Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. And this is the podcast for people who value real, different conversations. Conversations we hope inspire you to focus on the exponential power of what makes you different. And we feature real dialogues about how to design a legendary business and a legendary life by taking the road less traveled. We're sponsored by our good friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business today at netsuite.com slash different. I also want to tell you about this wonderful new handbook on how to design a legendary career that's really focused at pe- uh, for people who are at the beginning of their career. It's called Crash Your Career by my friend Isaac Morehouse. Go to crash.co slash different and there you'll be able to get a free preview of the new book. That's crash.co slash different. Now, today we have a very special episode celebrating the life and the lessons of the legendary Silicon Valley CEO coach, Bill Campbell. Bill was the coach to people like Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, and countless other Silicon Valley leaders and legends. Two VCs who were uh, entrepreneurs back in the day, Paul Martino of Bullpen Capital and Randy Komazar of Kleiner Perkins, came together to do an amazing thing, which is capture Bill in a podcast. And uh, a lot's been written about Bill, a lot's been said about Bill, but I think podcasting is actually the greatest uh, medium for capturing him because here's what Paul and Randy did. They went out and had conversations with many people who knew Bill and worked with Bill. And uh, Randy, bless him, was able to capture time with Bill towards the end of his life on audio. And they put all of this together in an incredible package for this new podcast about Bill's life and his lessons called No Bill, No Bull. <laughs> and um, today we feature a conversation with myself and, and Randy talking about Bill and talking about the new podcast. There's ton to learn here, whether you're an entrepreneur uh, or a business leader of any kind. Bill led an inspiring life, one that I think inspires all of us to, uh, to really go for it. I think this is an incredible conversation with Randy Komazar about an incredible guy. For more, go to Lockhead.com and check out the show notes for this episode. And now, hey-ho, let's go. Thank you for doing this podcast. Oh, that's that's very. I'm really pleased to do it. Thank you. And I think you guys, you're able, you were able to capture Bill more powerfully in a podcast than I think you ever could in a book. Yes, and, and I think there's good reasons for that. I think that's why Bill didn't want to ever do a book because Bill understood that you know, he didn't. He wasn't a guy with a big theory. He wasn't a guy with a whole set of, you know, sort of rules to, you know, the 10 rules to be successful. He was somebody who connected incredibly well with who you were and what you needed and was able to get you there. And that was very personal. And so I think the podcast, you know, after the trillion dollar book came out, I got to tell you, I was aghast as were, I think, a lot of Bill's real close friends. I mean, I don't think that book was written by Bill's close friends. And um, and I think Bill would have rolled over in his grave on that book. And so Paul and I sort of said, boy, we really need to, we need to give the world the real Bill. And, you know, this is the $1 coach, right? Yeah. It's so interesting you said that because um, 
when I first saw the title of the book, I didn't even realize who had written it. It's called The Trillion Dollar Coach, is it not? Yes, it's called Trillion Dollar Coach. And I knew Bill socially. I never really, I, I worked with him a little smidgen, but the truth is I knew him through Mike Homer. Yeah. And as I'm sure you remember, you know, they had a box yeah. at the 49ers and stuff. And Homer and I became friends in the early 2000s. And so I knew Bill socially by hanging out with Homer and watching him drink Budweiser and tell stories and, and shit like that. And so the Bill Campbell that I knew was, I think, the Bill Campbell that obviously you knew way better, which is not a guy that was highfalutin, not a guy that wanted to be yeah. on the cover of anything. And I didn't know him anywhere near the way you you and um, and Martino did. But I had that reaction when the book came out. I was like, I, the Bill Campbell that Mike Homer introduced me to would have hated this book title. Yes, exactly. Forget the contents. I think the contents are flattering, but I don't think they get deep into who Bill is. But But the title is so off-putting and I think sets the wrong tone for understanding what Bill was about. I mean, Bill never, yes, Bill was associated with a trillion dollars worth of, you know, value creation, but he, that was never his intention, nor do I think he ever cared. I mean, what he cared about was Steve Jobs. What he cared about were Sergey and Larry. What he, what he cared about was, you know, the, the, the people he worked with. And, and I think Bill's biggest legacy are, are these wonderful people who have been encouraged to stretch and reach and be great because of having spent time with them. And what, what was it that motivated you and Paul to want to, you know, the way I think about it, you tell me how you think about it, but the way I think about what you've done with this podcast is you've given bill to the next generations of entrepreneurs who unfortunately will never meet him, never hear him talk and, and never get one-on-one -on -one coached by him. And so You've done, I think, an incredible job of giving Bill to the world. But I'm curious, what was your motivation? What was Paul's motivation wanting to do this? Well, to your point, I think there's a sense of paying it forward. We all had the opportunity to learn from Bill and be better for it. And there will be a generation that will never know that. Maybe, you know, maybe they'll pick up the trillion-dollar coach, but that won't teach them anything about Bill, or will it lead them to learn the things they would have learned from Bill? So we felt there had to be a way to do that. Um, it's 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 not exact. It's certainly you know uh, I I wish it was Bill and not a podcast about Bill, um, but I, it was the best we could do, and I think this was the right medium for it. I also think you know it's interesting. I actually so you'll hear a lot of audio in there. That was the podcast I actually recorded with Bill. So. Before Bill died, you know, look, I knew he was in dire straits. He and I spent a lot of time together at his home. He was not getting around like he used to. He was slowing down. He had he was he was confronting the the end. And so I wanted to get it on tape. So I did that podcast. And um, and, and interestingly enough, I had scheduled another three hours with him for the week after he died. I was actually in London and was coming back to do the podcast. We're setting up at his home and I was going to do three hours with him and then I was going to get another three hours with him if I could. I was going to get as much time as I could with him. And I had this just terrible feeling in my stomach in London one day. And I sent an email immediately out to his assistant who told me that he had died. 
And that was the day before I was coming back. And it was, I mean, it was devastating on so many levels. I mean, I was deathly ill that month. I mean, physically ill that month. Um, physically ill at his memorial. But, um, but, more, but, but I also felt like it was such a great loss, you know, a week away from getting three more hours of him on tape. You know what? So again, thank you for doing that, Randy. And, and what I'm reminded of, um, some of my favorite music is the music of Johnny Cash right at the very end of his life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. what you remind me of is, uh, you know, Johnny was in a sim. I mean, I've read it. What do I know? These are stories I've read. But he was in a similar stage of his life where he knew he was declining. And the legendary producer, Rick Rubin, came to him and said, let's do some shit together. Yeah. And he was like, what do you mean? And my voice is not that good. And I'm this and I'm that. And Ruben convinced him to do it. They did all these amazing covers. Um, and, and not that I don't love the original Johnny. Of course, I love all Johnny Cash. There's something extra special about those recordings because I love the way his voice was. Uh, and I, this may sound morbid, but I don't mean it in a morbid way. There was something urgent about the music because Rick and Johnny and I'm sure all the musicians and everybody involved knew Johnny wasn't going to be around. And so there's something very akin to that, I think, in what you guys have captured um, by capturing Bill sort of right towards the end of his life. There's an extra special component of it because of that. I, by the way, I'm a Johnny Cash fan. I think that's probably, if not one of his best albums, it's certainly an incredible album. And I love the way his voice breaks. I love the way that he can't he can't hit every note anymore. I love the way he sort of flattens everything out to um, because it just is so soulful. I think it's I it's a powerful powerful album. I yes. think I think I think that uh, Rick did an amazing job getting that album out of him at the end. Um, and yeah, I, I I mean I'm flattered that you see some similarity there. Um, but uh, but I agree. I think Bill was very soulful, and he also said, had a sense of urgency at the end. He knew they didn't have a lot of time left. He wasn't going to touch a lot of new people, and um, and he was willing to extend himself right to the end. The other thing I got to take my hat off to you guys about, and and I was so touched when I heard those episodes in the beginning. I don't know if you ever had this experience. I had it to me once in my life. I went to a funeral of actually a guy I worked with and another executive that worked with him was one of the people to eulogize him. And this guy doing this eulogy got up and the truth is he told a story about himself. <laughs> and I was so sickened because he was self-aggrandizing himself in this fucking story about this executive that we all loved and admired and he, but he made it about him, not about the, the dead guy. And look, you're a very big guy, author, all the, you know, incredible career, uh, strong, you know, personality and ego as is Martino. You guys could have easily turned this into, even if you didn't do it on purpose, um, we're going to sort of talk about bill, but really as an excuse to talk about how awesome and smart we are. Yeah. And you did the opposite of that, Randy. There is a humanity and a reverence for Bill. I know this sounds corny, maybe like I lived on the West Coast too long, but like you you and Martino, at least the way it feels to me as a consumer of the podcast, 
are truly at service of Bill, his ideas, and his memory. And it really is not about you or Martino. I'm, I'm pleased that came through as well. Um, look, we love Bill. Um, I love Bill. I, I mean, right over there is a picture of me and Bill right next to my computer. It's there every day to remind me to be my best self because that's what Bill did for me for 30 some on years. Um, a lot of people say, uh, you know, they ask themselves the question, what would Bill have done? And, and what that question really means is, what would your best self do right now? Because that's what Bill brought out in you. It was never about what Bill would do. And so I think in this podcast, it was the same for me and Martino. It was, um, it was an opportunity for us to share our true love and respect and admiration and appreciation for Bill and, uh, and to pay Bill forward because yeah. he invested so much in all of us. Yeah. And so what are the things, Randy, um, that come to mind for you when you think about what are the things you want the world people to get when they listen to this podcast? Maybe, you know, many people, hopefully millions over time that didn't know Bill. What do you want them to get? Bill, Bill made business interesting for me in particular, but I think for many people, because he made it about people, not about money. And uh, too often we begin to think about businesses only buying low and selling high. You know, that becomes the importance of business. It's our bank accounts. It's our wealth. That's our celebrity in the world. That's our identity in the world. And Bill would have none of that. Um, you know, frankly, I don't think I would have ever stayed in business if it wasn't for Bill, because I, I found it very um, uninspiring to go out every day and make a buck. Um, look, I have nothing against making a buck. It allows us to live the life. You are a venture capitalist after all, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but to be frank, making a buck doing what? You know, creating a better world, solving an important problem, um, helping people to be better. Uh, and it's the various stakeholders that are more important than the dollars in. The first and foremost, of course, the founders of the team, but also the the the, the employees, the uh, customers, the shareholders, and these are all people. And Bill made it interesting, and he made it worthwhile and purposeful because people are worth it. Money isn't generally worth it. Yes. Now, one of the things that I, I remark on when I think about Bill, and again, I just had mostly a personal experience with him, uh, not so much a professional one, but Bill struck me, and I, 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 I learned a lot about him through Homer. Homer told me all sorts of stories, right? And I had tremendous affection for Homer. I miss him dearly. Um, but one of the things that comes to mind right away is it seemed like in some ways... Um, when people were speaking with Bill, um, they were borrowing or maybe standing on his courage. He seemed like a very courageous man, like a man who said what needed to be said, a man who uh, uh, did what needed to be did, uh, did yeah, did what needed to be done, who, who had the courage to have the tough conversation that people were avoiding. And so there was there was a courageous spirit about him that I recognized and I heard through people. 
But I'm curious uh, how you think about Bill and his, his ability to kind of prop people up and have them be more courageous. I think Bill always had a sense that there was a right thing to do and a wrong thing to do. And that we could cloud that with our intellect. You know, I think smart people are really great at rationalizing. And so, you know, I hear people with incredible rationales for doing the wrong thing all the time. Bill was somebody who cut through that like a knife. And his sense was, you always knew what the right thing to do was go into your gut, find it and do it. Don't sit around overthinking the problem and justifying doing the wrong thing. So, you know, I, I, one thing that, that I really took away from Bill was um, the right thing and the smart thing aren't necessarily the same thing. And the right thing is worth doing. And the smart thing needs a lot of consideration because it may be smart because it allows you to do the wrong thing. You know, it's so funny. Uh, this morning, I got an email from an entrepreneur that I've been doing a few things with. And it really pissed me off. It was all fucking wrong, I thought. And it was in the context of our relationship. And I couldn't believe that I got this dumbass email from this younger entrepreneur. And uh, a, a earlier version of myself would have absolutely sent an email that said, go fuck yourself. <laughs> and And... I almost sent him that email this morning, but I was smart enough. I, I get up early. I was up before my wife. I was smart enough to not send go fuck yourself. And boy, did I ever want to. <laughs> and I shared the email with my wife, Carrie, who's an amazing gal. And, you know, I think if you're in a great marriage, your spouse is your coach, right? And I said, you know, baby, what do, what do you think I do? And we sort of game. She said, well, you should have a conversation with him and you should explain to him why this is dumb and this is wrong and he's got it all backwards and why this is short-term. And, you know, so we sort of unpacked the thing. And so that's, of course, what I'm going to do. I, I had this, in her talking to me, I had this moment of clarity, you know, maybe a Bill-esque moment insofar as my job with this younger entrepreneur is to help him be successful is to make him a better person, a more legendary entrepreneur. And if I just say, go fuck yourself, it's not going to be helpful, right? Yeah. It, he'll go, you know, he, he, he holds me in somewhat of a regard and so forth. And it's like, wow, well, one of his heroes told him to go fuck himself. <laughs> and there was a big part of me that would have said, go fuck yourself and literally walked away. Like I, the, the, the punk rocker, the anger, you know, I anger. I don't know if you remember this old uh, Johnny Rotten song, anger is an energy, right? Like anger is my happy place. <laughs> and so, but I realized in my discussion with Carrie, my job is to make a difference for this entrepreneur and telling him to go fuck himself is, is not going to be helpful. <laughs> yes. Well, and, and I, by the way, have similar um, muscle reflexes in situations like that. And I've learned to... Um, write, write, my, write my response, not send it, come back and read it, edit it, edit it, edit it, until basically it's now it's the right thing to say. And, um, but it, take, it, it takes some self-restraint to do that. I, 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 I do always ask myself when I'm about to, when I feel like I need to lash out, and sometimes it is the right answer, seldom, but sometimes it's the right way to get the point across, to what end? To what right. end am I saying this? To what end am I doing this? What is the result that I want? And more often than not, I find that in those angry moments, the result that I feel I'm looking for is venting, which isn't yes. a useful result. So if I really want to get to a better answer, I need to, I need to be more skillful. 
Yes. This is why uh, becoming a boxer and a martial artist has helped me in life because I yeah. could take that out on a bag, <laughs> not an entrepreneur. <laughs> so I just love this bill statement, the right thing and the smart thing and that distinction. Um, it's a very powerful, I mean, it sounds so simple, like a lot of the things I think that come across about bill, but we all have a conscience and we're all better if we ask ourselves, what is the, what is really the right thing here? What is truly the outcome we want? As opposed to if you're like me and maybe like you respond in anger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> what are some of the other, uh, you know, bill learnings that you hope uh, people take away from the podcast? Well, I, I do think that Bill's ability to empathize and understand the person across the table is, was very powerful. It's probably, frankly, the most powerful thing about Bill was his, his sense of who you were and what you needed. And I think that people should understand the importance of developing that sensibility and that skill, even if you can't do it as brilliantly as Bill. Empathy and compassion for the people you're working with is, uh, is, is powerful medicine, both for you and for them. Uh, Bill, you know, the, there was a story about Bill, there was, a, there was an event for Bill, I think Intuit at some point in the early 2000s had decided they were going to establish a foundation in Bill's name that Bill could designate for the causes that were important to him. And there were probably 300 people in the room. Um, at one point, I think Bruce Dunleavy looked at me, Bruce, Bruce Dunleavy from Benchmark, and said, you know, there's 300 people in this room, and every single one of them thinks that Bill is his, his best friend or her best friend. And that was a, an ability that Bill had in connecting with people that I'd never seen anybody else do. And through that ability, he was able to um, help you grow a foot and a half um, and do the things that you could do and achieve your potential because he could see right into you uh, and he could see what you needed and what was troubling you. And he could, he could guide you through that in the clearest way possible because of that ability to connect. It's so interesting you mentioned that because that was exactly the experience that I had at Bill's Memorial, right? Yeah. That, that like everybody here thinks they're best friends with Bill. <laughs> yes. And the yeah. only other um, business person's funeral that I've been to that felt that way, interestingly enough, was Homer. Everybody yeah. thought Homer was their best friend. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. And so, well, go ahead, go ahead. You know, there's tremendous similar, I mean, Look, Mike and I and Bill spent a huge amount of time together, um, and you know there were times we there were there were we were actually all three of us at one point going to try to create some partnership doing something like what Bill did. We ended up not doing that because Homer went off in one direction and 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 I went off in another, and I, I regret that very much. You know, losing Mike and losing his brother Jim. And then losing Steve Jobs, these were gigantic losses for Bill. He, he loved Mike. Mike was his son, right? I mean, he, I, I, the relationship between them was so complicated and so interesting um, because... Peter Curry said to me, Homer is Campbell's baby. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And Bill was there to the bitter end with Mike. When Mike deteriorated to a husk of his old self. So fast it felt like, right? I mean, we knew Mike was in trouble and then bam, it felt like he was gone instantaneously. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to uh, jinx London, but I remember when I was in London and got the message that, that, uh, that Homer was basically terminally ill. And I cried. I cried in that hotel room when I heard that. Uh, you, you and me both, brother. Maybe you need to not go to London anymore. <laughs> I, know, I know, I know. Maybe Paris. I don't know. It's... But I want to circle back to this. You use the word empathy and compassion. And, you know, here's this guy, Campbell, uh, you know, uh, famous, uh, legendary coach, football coach, uh, you know, uh, coach to Bill, uh, coach to, um, uh, uh, of course, Steve Jobs. Like his you know, the Google guy, you know, on and on and on. And so there, and there was a bit of a um, persona is the wrong word, but there was a bit of a tough guy vibe to Bill, right? Even when you met him socially, you sort of knew that if you were going to come up to him and say something, you probably didn't want to say something stupid, right? <laughs> you, 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 you had that feeling like I better be on my toes with this guy. And so there was uh, something intimidating about him. He had a giant personality and a giant reputation and so it would be easy to look at a guy like Bill and go, oh, he's, you know, macho. He's a tough guy, football guy, uh, you know, 20 more push-ups, Yes, sir. That kind of a character. Right. And so to use the word compassion and empathy with this tough football coach character is a very interesting juxtaposition. How do you sort of think about those things in your mind? Well, he definitely had a crusty veneer. There's no question about that. And I think he would turn it on and turn it off depending upon how well you knew him or what the situation was. If he was in a large social group of a bunch of guys drinking beer, watching a game, he was the crusty coach. If he was in a room with uh, you know, a couple of entrepreneurs who were looking into the abyss, he, he'd had an arm around their shoulders. And I think that's the way he was as a coach. Certainly was the way he was with me. Um, you know, he would toughen me up when I need to be toughened up. And he'd put an arm around me when I needed an arm around me. Uh, and I always knew he knew what the right thing to do was. I never doubted that however he responded to me was the correct way. Even if, he, even if it was a slap across the face to straighten up, um, I realized, you know, that was done with great compassion. And he probably was right. Yeah. Uh, I needed to do that just then. Uh, you know, he tells, there's a story, there's a lot of stories about Bill. And he used to tell a lot of stories and all of his stories had some metaphor in them. But a story I, I kind of, uh, the story, the unusual story, you know, I can, I, I loved a lot of his stories, but the story that seldom gets told is a story that always stuck with me about um, humility and, uh, and, and compassion. And I, I think, there was a time when he was the Columbia football coach with, I think, one of the worst records in all of football. And his team suddenly uh, ended up in the end zone by accident, basically, with a touchdown. And his bench emptied out. And they all ran down into the end zone. And it was this party in the end zone before parties in the end zone became sort of cliché. And Bill was marching up and down the sideline grimacing as his team was out there partying. And as the team came back, 
and got back into the uh, onto the to, to the bench and got ready for the kickoff, Bill looked at them all and said, "Next time you're in the end zone, act like you've been there before." And I always saw that as such a powerful statement. You know, cut the bullshit. You know, cut all this nonsense that now Silicon Valley is famous for, and get back down to the truth. Get back down to the essence. Do the hard work, and you know, yes, you can celebrate the hard work, but you don't do that at the expense of anybody else in the stadium, in the room, in the problem. It is a, um, it is about the moment of truth for you, not some, you know, that, that's some dance in the end zone. It's so interesting you say that because uh, uh, I don't even know if you should call it a sport, but. Um, I started surfing later in life and I love it. I'm a very enthusiastic, mediocre longboarder. And uh, when you have a great wave, there is a natural human inclination to go, yeah, put your arms up. And, and in surfing, we call that the claim, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember early on in my uh, surfing life where uh, a friend of mine, pu- I surfed a great wave and it felt like a, big accomplishment. And I put my hands up and did that. And a buddy of mine came over and said, uh, you sh- no claiming in surfing. And I, I said, well, what do you yeah. mean? I just surfed like one of the best waves I've ever surfed. I'm feeling great. And I'm all that. I can't remember his exact words, but it was very like how you describe, which is if you do that, then you're telling everybody in the lineup, that's one of your best waves. You should act like that's all your waves, you dumbass. Just fucking yeah. surf and enjoy yourself. And so that Bill story about like, act like you've been there before is a very um, powerful insight for people, I think. Well, it always reminds me to put my ego aside. Um, I think that's the lesson I get from that. Um, you know, I, others may get different lessons from that, but it, this was about the humility that Bill showed to everybody um, yeah. every day in spite of his amazing both stature and, um, and brilliance. Now, now, Bill was known as many things, but one of them was a, a, as a marketing expert, mm. right? And he, he ran marketing at various points in his career and, and had some very definitive ideas about marketing. And so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, Randy, what are some of the marketing uh, insights and ideas from Bill that have, uh, that have lasted for you? Well, you know, again, a billism. Um, Bill would always say that um, there's no such thing as marketing without a product in front of it. So it was always product marketing to Bill. He, he and, and, and again, it's just, it's just so Bill. So it wasn't about what you said about your product. It wasn't about your marketing. It wasn't about how clever your advertising was. It was about the value in that product and delivering that value and and making sure that that value satisfied the customer's real need. And so, yes, certainly Bill understood that there had to be outbound marketing, there had to be advertising, there had to be branding. But his statement that marketing always needed a product in front of it um, was, to me, uh, a, a guiding light in thinking about the organizations that I would build and the people I would hire. And my memory of sort of that thread with him, and again, of course, you knew him a thousand times better than I did, was that he didn't like marketing that wasn't substantive, that was sort of fluffy or just communicating some, you know, 
I don't know, some feeling bullshit or whatever that it needed, your marketing needed to be grounded in something. And that big something was a product that delivered real value that worked that when a customer used it, experienced it, et cetera, they went, oh, this is an awesome product. And that if you're marketing that, then you're doing great marketing. And if you're marketing some, you know, bullshit, essentially, then you're full of shit. That, that was sort of my interpretation of how he was on this. But I'm curious what yours is. I think that's right. I mean, look at Mike. Mike Homer came into marketing through Bill. Mike was a was a technical guy. He was a you know he was a computer geek, and he became a very very good marketer. But you you would and and he was he's certainly good at outbound and branding. But fundamentally, he was great at product. And so I, I think Bill he he was built in Bill's image of what marketing needed to be. And I and I think by the way. Mike was maybe even better at many aspects of marketing ultimately than Bill was um, because he was so deep into product. But, um, but, I, but, but substance and value was important to Bill. He didn't agree with the idea of, of, of selling you know, the latest fad or the latest trend. Um, you needed to deliver real value, solve real problems for people. And if you did that, uh, then you could build strong marketing around messaging that to your customer and making sure your customer understood that and got that value for it. But without that value, nothing else mattered. Well, and it's so interesting you bring that up. You know, in, in our world, uh, of course, marketing is often most disrespected in the organization by A, product and engineering, and B, sales, right? And um, to CMOs or marketers, I always tell them the number one skill you got to have is sales. You got to be in the field. You got to be in front of customers. And if sales reps don't want to take you on calls, you have a big problem as a marketer. And on the product side, um, I learned this early in my career. And as a CMO, I would um, uh, at least twice a year swap jobs with our head of engineering for a week. And I felt the same thing on the engineering side, that even though I'm not a technical person, I never have and never will write a line of code that at least at a strategic level, if you can't get in a room with product designers, developers, coders, et cetera, brainstorm new ideas, new features, new capabilities, talk about what our competitors are doing and how we can outflank them and have an architecture discussion or a you know, priority discussion around new features and new releases and, and be viewed, even though you're not a coder, even though you're not an engineer, but be viewed as an equal in terms of the quality of your ideas and that you were steeped enough in product that you could be a significant contributor. If you couldn't do that, or, or said in a simpler way, if you couldn't swap jobs with the head of engineering and make it work for at least a week as a CMO, you were in a lot of trouble in our industry. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I saw Bill do that in practice because when we were at Claris, he would, in fact, take his engineers from time to time and send them out into the field with his sales guys. And I also watched Bill, and you know, when 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 things got mucky at headquarters, Bill would get on a plane and go out and talk. That was critical for Bill, and that's where he got his energy from. That's where he got his insights from, and then he would come back. I mean, there's a great there's a great story about that with Martino. Uh, when Bill and I were working with Paul, you know, Paul, when I invested in Paul's company, Aggregate Knowledge, um, it was a rocket ship for like six months. Paul did something that very few CEOs did uh, or do, and that is he got on a plane and said, I'm going to spend the next three months talking to customers. So he went out and talked to customers for three months and came back to us at the board and said, it's not sales, it's the product. And we have the 
wrong product for the wrong market. And we got to change that. And ultimately, what Paul did was he actually changed CEOs. He gave up the CEO spot, took the chairman spot, and brought in the appropriate CEO for the product that he actually needed for the industry, which was not the product that he started with. So that insight of going out there and talking to customers and rubbing up against them is so critical for everybody in the organization. Anybody starts to fall off, put them out in the field for a week. They'll come back and they will understand a lot more about their company and their product. I also, you know, to your point, Randy, if you're an executive in our industry, you're an entrepreneur and you go out in the field after a week or two, whatever it is. And if you're not energized when you come back, you need to go work at the DMV or something, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I would be remiss, of course, if I didn't ask you about Bill's, uh, what by all accounts appears to be a very special relationship with Steve Jobs. Well, um, Bill's, I think Bill's relationship with Steve Jobs was born from his um, early uh, working with Bill at, at, at Apple when Bill when Steve was just a kid. And uh, I think that he developed a real appreciation for Jobs's amazing brilliance and talent, and also an appreciation for the Jobs's temperament that I think undermined him early in his career. And um, in that situation, when I think Jobs felt besieged by Scully and felt betrayed by his team at Apple, Bill was somebody who maintained that relationship with Steve early on, um, never lost confidence or faith in Steve. I think saw Steve for who he was, for his good points and his bad points, and um, was willing to forgive him his weaknesses for his amazing strengths and help Steve navigate that. And when Steve ended up taking over Apple in the late 90s, Bill was, I think, the first person he added to his board of directors. So uh, so that relationship had lasted for some 20 plus years through Steve's walk through the desert at Next and at Pixar uh, back to Apple. Um, and that Bill was devoted to Steve. Uh, Bill went um, to great extremes to to help Steve and protect Steve when Steve was under SEC investigations, Um, when Steve was ill, when Steve was being criticized by shareholders for not being straight with them about his situation. Bill was there um, protecting Steve at every juncture. And my understanding is that on Steve's last day, Bill was there with them and certainly one of the last people that Steve saw. Yeah. I, I remember some of those times and I remember thinking Bill was sort of like the heat shield for jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he took he took some of those arrows for him. It, it, that, that's how it appeared to me as, as an outsider looking at it. I think that's true. He did that for all of his friends. You know, um, Bill was not without his uh, faults. And I think one of his faults was that um, if you had a falling out with Bill, you could never come back in. You were done. So it didn't, you know, a false move, um, a a breach of integrity, which was probably the most important breach for Bill, and you were out. You could never get back in. On the other hand, if you were in, it didn't matter 
<laughs> it didn't matter where you tripped up or what foibles you had, Bill was there for you. And, um, and that loyalty was incredibly important to Bill and to the people he worked with. Uh, I, I, I think that Bill's, Bill's sense of loyalty was stronger than probably anybody I've ever met. Mm. I mean, it was obvious when you saw him around people who were in his close-knit group of friends. I mean, the one, of course, I saw was him and Homer, and it was, it was very obvious, right? And there's a word that you don't hear a lot in business, but it was obvious how much Bill loved those people. Absolutely. I, can't, I don't think you can talk about Bill without using the L word. Um, and, um, and Bill was never afraid to use the L word either. I mean, you know, he'd give you a big hug and get, give you a kiss on the cheek. And he had no compunction about that. Um, that demonstration of affection was who Bill was. And it was natural and it was um, unrehearsed and unchoreographed. Um, and you loved to receive it because you knew you were going straight to the source when you got it. Yeah. Um, and that was Bill connecting with you. So uh, I do think that Bill was um, somebody who truly appreciated people and friends and good friends and family. I mean, we haven't talked about family, but family was really important to him. Danny Shader in our interview with, you know, in Paul and in my interview with, with Danny, he says something that I think is, is, is quite telling. And I, and I had not used these terms before, but I think it's quite right, which is Bill had many families. If you take a look at the people in Bill's life and how they broke out, there were many different clusters of people around Bill. You know, I went to every birthday party for Bill and I went to every Christmas party. But there were people also went to the baseball outings with Bill. There were people went on a fishing trip with Bill. And they sometimes they overlapped and sometimes they didn't. These were these were groups of people who he may have met at different points in his life. There are groups of people who came to him through his kid's school. There are people who came to him as in, you know, this latest book about him as later stage mentors who really weren't, you know, they weren't as close to Bill as Mike or I or Donna Dubinsky or Dave Kinzer or any of those people who kind of grew up with Bill. I mean, in a strange way, our, our relationship with Bill, Donna's and mine and Dave Kinzer's, um, was very different than these later mentees because uh, we actually were kind of, he was kind of our older brother. He wasn't some amazing mentor to Homer and I, he was our young, he was our older brother. We, we, we actually saw him become Bill Campbell in the Valley because we did Apple together and then Claris together. And then, I, then Mike and I and Bill did go together. And we saw Bill develop as a, as a leader in the Valley. I mean, he was always an amazing person, but we saw him develop as a CEO. So we didn't have this reverence for him that you see from a lot of his later stage mentees. Um, we would argue with Bill and, and, and Bill would be very clear that he was learning from us as we were learning from him. We were learning a lot more from him. He's learning from us, but, but there was much more of a sharing and interacting around this than his simply being the Oracle, um, helping people to navigate their problems. And so each one of these family groups had a different set of relationship with them. And I think, you know, if you take a look at this latest book, it was written by one family. Take a look at this podcast. It's a different family. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, a lot of people today, it strikes me, want to be coaches, mm -hmm. right? There's a million fucking coaches. They all have websites. They all write the same book. 
they all have the same podcast. Some of these coaches are, you know, and I don't mean to be pejorative towards young people, but like some of them, you look at them and go, how can you do this when you're 22 years old? You read a Tony Robbins book and now you're pumping up bullshit on Instagram or whatever. There's a lot of people now in this, you know, coaching business, right? Yeah. And, and so how do you think about Bill as a coach? What, what did he teach you about being a coach yourself and being a better coach? Well, look, I think uh, this is a question I've asked myself a lot through the years be, and basically trying to understand what Bill would do differently than everybody else. And I, so I broke the world up in the three, um, their advisors, their coaches, and their mentors. And from my perspective, an advisor is somebody who brings you an expertise you don't have. Um, you take that expertise, you apply it, but you're basically learning some particular skill or set of information that you don't, that you can't readily get. And that's what you get from an advisor. And then I think about a coach as somebody who's actually helping you to do a better job at something that is sort of more tactical. It's like running meetings or building your organization or, you know, it is a very clear set of skills that they're working with you on. And then there are mentors and mentors are people who make you better, a better person. They're not about, about giving you information, though they may. They're not about um, improving your skill set, though they may. They're about you. They're about helping you to be your best you. And Bill Campbell was the epitome of that. And that's what I learned, which is, yes, at times you may be an advisor, at times you may be a coach, but what you want to aspire to be is a mentor. Somebody who is uh, able to help that person across from you be better, to reach their potential, to do the right thing. And that right thing might be, by the way, leaving their company. It might be changing their role. It is not about making them a better CEO per se. It's about helping them to find the right path for them. That's, a, I think, an incredibly powerful uh, insight, Randy. That's awesome. Now, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, uh, are there any other things you'd like to touch on before we wrap, Randy? Uh, no, I just, I really want to thank you for giving me this time to talk about, you know, what Paul and I have done with the podcast, but more importantly, to talk about Bill. I, I, I can talk about Bill endlessly and, um, and I just appreciate the chance to, to help other people understand what Bill was about. And, um, and I think what we can all learn from Bill about being better at what we do and who we are. Well, and if I could share with you, um, I, uh, I've gotten to know, um, speaking of bills, uh, Bill Walton <laughs> and, uh, he's been this magical mystery tour, uh, unexpected, uh, uh, you know, sort of got parachuted into my life over the last year and a half or so. And one of the many things Walton has taught me is the power of being an exuberant over the top fan. Mm. You know, the, the Grateful Dead invented yeah. the Fan Hall of Fame for Bill Walton, right? And he's the first inductee. And so, and some people sometimes criticize me for being over the top laudatory about things that I'm enthusiastic about. But my response to that is go fuck yourself. And Bill Walton's taught me to be a fan. And when you're 
when you truly appreciate something about somebody else, then be over the top. So let me be over the top for a second, if I could, with all that said, Randy. Fucking A, you and Martino crushed it with this podcast. I love that you did this. I think it's incredible. I, I, I want to celebrate you and turn as many people onto this as possible. Um, uh, not only for what I said over the top, but can I be specific with you on how you did the podcast that I love as well? Please. <laughs> so I am not generally a fan of overly produced podcasts and the traditional interview that's a collision of fucking a pre-configured narrative by the host and a bunch of sound bites by the guest that then gets edited and fucked up. And, and you know, we have a lot of people on, on this podcast who, who are, you know, way big people who don't necessarily need to be here. But part of why they come is they know that it's not going to get edited and fucked with. Mm-hmm. And so whenever I see a highly produced podcast like the one you and Martino have done, I'm all, I always go in with like a radar up like, oh God, you know, what's this going to be? Mm-hmm. I think you guys crushed it. I think it is a wonderful blend of the right amount of production. You and Martino and others talking about Bill, talking about things you learned from Bill. And God bless you for doing that stuff at the end of his life so that I think it would have been great if it was just you and Martino and and a handful of others talking. But of course, we, the listener, get those wonderful snippets of Bill. And I think you guys... As somebody who's highly sensitized to edited and produced podcasts, you nailed it. It is the right mix of what I would call authentic conversation about Bill and Bill interjected and it's produced and packaged in, I think, an absolutely, and I'm going to use maybe an unusual word, but a fucking beautiful way. And God bless you and Martino for producing a legendary podcast about a legendary guy. And it, it, it pains me to think that entrepreneurs in today's world and going forward won't know Bill. Uh, uh, and now they will. And I think there's no better way that you guys could have given the world Bill than to do exactly what you've done. And fucking A, Randy. I. I'm so flattered and I'm so pleased and thank you for all of that. Thank you. My pleasure. Anything else before we wrap, sir? Um, no, thanks a lot. We got to get together in Santa Cruz. Hey, first beers are on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> Take all care, right, man. Mr. Komazar, so thank you so much. I really Bye-bye. appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. There he is. The incredible Randy Komazar. I can't uh, thank him enough for uh, investing this time. And I sure hope you go to whatever podcast platform you use, uh, search for No Bull and hit that subscribe button because uh, I think you're going to learn a lot by learning more about Bill. And like I said earlier in the podcast, you actually get to hang out with him. Now, publicly traded software company DocuSign wanted to modernize its IT platform and streamline its business processes. And that's why they turned to my friends at NetSuite. In particular, DocuSign wanted to make sure that revenue recognition was super tight. They're now a publicly traded company. And they had, uh, prior to NetSuite, they had a spreadsheet reliant process that had grown unmanageable as the business approached 100,000 global customers. So, Uh, DocuSign turned to NetSuite for its IT platform to integrate numerous cloud systems and really become the system of record for running the business. DocuSign needed a platform that would allow it to streamline everything in the cloud for budgeting, forecasting, billing, CRM, time management, and expense management. 
And that's why today they use NetSuite, the platform for growing companies who want to know their business frontward and back. NetSuite is the number one business platform in the cloud for high growth companies. And they're making you a special offer. Go to NetSuite.com slash different. And while you're there, you'll be able to set up a free one hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out NetSuite.com slash different. All right. We would like to thank the incredible new No Bull podcast featuring the life and lessons of Bill Campbell by uh, Randy Comazar, our guest today, and Paul Martino. Check it out everywhere you get legendary podcasts. The good folks at OneLifeFullyLive.org, the number one LifeFullyLive.org slash Lockhead. Check that out. While you're there, you'll be able to get information on our upcoming event in beautiful Long Beach, California, October 2019. OneLifeFullyLive.org slash Lockhead. And um, speaking of podcasts, I love if you're in the tech industry, and if you're like me, every once in a while you get a little grumpy, why not check out Grumpy Old Geeks podcast with my buddy Jason DeFilippo and his co-host Brian Schulmeister. Check out GrowWire.com as well. That's a fantastic new place on the internet where growth-oriented people and companies are learning more about how to um, build a legendary business and discover inspiring conversations and information about innovation. Check out GrowWire.com. The official sock supplier to this podcast is John's Crazy Socks. Why settle for boring, plain old socks when you can have crazy socks? Check out JohnsCrazySocks.com. Now, are you in the UK and you want to do some legendary marketing? Or maybe you're a technology company or a high-growth company in the United States and you're expanding into Europe. Uh, Why not check out my friends at PositiveMarketing.com. That's PositiveMarketing.com. And um, if you're somebody who's growing, maybe you want to get some more time back in your life. And uh, it might be the uh, it might be the exact right time for you to get more time to check out my friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistance at bottleneck.online. And the amazing folks at the Front Row Foundation. These people work with um, folks who have life-threatening diseases or conditions, and they put together an incredible experience for them. And having been a part of this, I'll tell you, it's a very moving thing when um, somebody who's facing death uh, gets to have a day or two or whatever it is uh, that they will never forget. So check out the thefrontrowfoundation.org and make a difference today. All right. This oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And uh, we must warn you that all rights do remain perturbed and that clearly this oddcast is produced in a studio that does contain nuts. <laughs> um, it is produced by Jamie J, edited by the incredible Sarah Parrish and Mike D. Don't forget to support your local entrepreneurs. Share the lessons of Bill Campbell. Don't be lame. Get out of the passing lane. Listen to the Ramones. And, um, hey, have you checked out your measles situation? I want you to know this is a public service announcement. I went for my annual doctor's appointment, which I go to every three or four years. And she took a blood test from me, and she tested the measles shot that I got as a kid. And it turned out it had pretty much worn off. And so I recently got a new measles shot. So check with your doctor. You don't want to get the measles. You might need a new shot, just like I did. Uh, Thank you, Candy Dandy. Love your mom and dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Elizabeth Holmes, former CEO of Theranos. Sorry, Lizzie, we just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Um, Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your different. (laughs) 